and verse number 1. Mark chapter 6 and verse number 1. Are you thankful for the word this morning? Amen. Brother Kenneth Hagin said, if you want the word of God to work in your life, you have to get excited about it. And I am excited about the word of God. I'm excited about the wisdom that we have been made, uh, uh, that has been made available to us by God uh, in his word. Mark chapter 6, verse 1, it says, Then he, speaking of Jesus, he went out from there and came to his own country, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that such mighty works are performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. So they were offended at him. Look at me for a moment, okay? The Bible says we cannot be ignorant of the devil's devices. You have an enemy, and he is constantly scheming and strategizing against you, all right? And we've said this before. I'm not going to teach extensively on this this morning, but remember, every tactic that the enemy has to use against you is designed to get you to respond in a way that you were not created and designed and intended by God to respond, okay? Now, we see then that being offended. Do you realize that we, we live in a world that's offended? Have you noticed that? Um, and, and so much of, of what the devil is trying to get you and me, to, he's trying to get us to respond with an offense, the Bible says don't take the bait. Don't take the offense. There will be many offenses offered to you today and in the week ahead. Amen. Don't take them. It's something Satan is trying to use against you in your life. But we see here, Jesus comes to his own hometown and the people acknowledged that he was given something that uh, he did, that, you know, from God that didn't originate from himself, that it was wisdom that enabled him to do mighty works but they were offended at him. Verse 4, But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Verse 5, Now he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them, and he marveled because of their unbelief. Then he went about the villages in a circuit teaching. We looked into some things last Sunday that I would encourage you, if you haven't been able to hear that message yet, I would encourage you to access that. You can do it online, um, Facebook, there's lots of ways for you to access that message. I'm going to kind of build on some of those things um, this week. So by way of review, we see the people in Jesus' hometown were uh, offended at him, and ultimately they were wrong about him. They considered him to be uh, not above them, but in essence beneath them, rather than receiving him as he was received in other places with honor and respect and admiration and appreciation. He was considered to be um, uh, Mary's son, and we kind of focused on that a little bit last week. This was quite an insult. Um, rather than Joseph's son. And we, we, of course, know that Joseph was not his father, but remember, the people there in his hometown 
um, would have known that Mary became pregnant with Jesus before she was married to Joseph. And so this was a slight, if you will, not a, not a sign of respect, uh, definitely not a sign of respect. And so we see this uh, amazing verse 5 that Jesus could do no mighty work there. And as I've emphasized over and over again, it's not that he wouldn't do it, it's that he couldn't do it. Their attitude towards him prevented him from being able to do what he was sent to them to do for them. He could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And then verse 6 says that he marveled because of their unbelief. Now, in two different places in the Gospels, we see where Jesus marveled at someone's faith, the centurion and the Syrophoenician woman. Jesus marveled at their faith. With the centurion, Jesus even said, I haven't seen faith like this in anywhere else in Israel. But this is the opposite end of the spectrum. Now we see Jesus marveling because of their unbelief. And notice what he did. He went about the villages in a circuit teaching. So remember, this all began in the synagogue, which would have been like a, a main place of, of, of assembly, a main place of meeting. Um, and when Jesus was, you know, they were offended at Jesus and they, they uh, um, you know, questioned his um, uh, validity and so forth and so on. The solution to this was for Jesus to get out of the synagogue and go into the, when it says villages, the, the neighborhoods and, and you know, subdivisions, different words that we may use. I'm trying to help you connect with this in, in a personal way. He got out among the people, let's just say it that way, and, and he traveled in a pattern, in a circuit, um, and, and, he, and he was teaching them. Now, two Sundays ago, I told you that you know, this, this whole do something Jesus, you know, that this, this thing that's rising up like, you know, do something for these people, do something to help these people. And, and we see that basically because of their failure to honor him and their lack of respect for him, his hands were tied and the, and the best solution, how many of you know God always knows the best answer for the problem? The best solution for these people was Jesus to begin to go uh, into these little villages, subdivisions, neighborhoods around the synagogue and uh, teach the people. Now, we see that their unbelief was a big problem here. Amen? Are you with me still this morning? We could look at so many verses in the scriptures you know, where, where we see that um, a lack of faith or, um, you know, wavering in faith. James says it as plainly and as bluntly as anywhere else in Scripture. Um, a man who, a woman who wavers in their faith, the Bible says, do not let that person suppose they will receive anything from God. And we know that faith receives what grace has already given. We know faith is such a crucial part in our ability to receive anything from God. We receive salvation by faith. We receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit by faith. We receive our healing by faith. And, and just the list goes on and on and on. And so obviously these people had a faith problem. Their unbelief prevented Jesus from being able to do anything among them. But if you look closer, we see their unbelief problem was rooted in an honor problem. 
their, 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 their ability to believe was rendered ineffective because of their refusal or failure to honor Jesus properly. Now, why is that such a, a, an important thing for me to point out? Because the same is true for people today. A failure to properly honor God will render the measure of faith that God has put in your heart uh, ineffective. In other words, it won't do what it, what it was designed to do. It won't work in the way that it was meant to work in. And, we, and we've taught on this extensively as well. I'm not going to try to go into all this, but it's like you can put good light bulbs in bad fixtures all day long, and the light bulb's not going to work if the fixture is broken. And we see that faith is something that has been screwed into uh, the fixture of our heart. With the heart, man believes. And if we have problems in our heart, it can render our faith ineffective or limit its ability to work at all in our lives. And so we see that there, the, the surface problem was unbelief, but the underlying problem was a lack of honor. Now, the people in Jesus' hometown were obviously wrong about him. Can you see that? And that's pretty obvious. They were wrong about him. But to compound the problem is they were wrong about him and they did not know they were wrong about him. They were wrong about him but thought they were right about him. Now, Jesus was the most qualified person to correct their error. Are you seeing what's, what's happening here? They were wrong and thought they were right. Jesus was the most qualified to correct them, but their lack of honor for him made it impossible for them to receive correction from him. Now, we're going to develop this a little further this morning, but I want you to just think about that uh, on the surface for a moment, all right? You will not receive correction from someone you have no respect for. You will not receive correction from someone you do not honor. If someone you do not hold in proper esteem tries to speak a word of correction into your life, you will resist it, you will reject it, you will question it, or as is the case here in uh, Jesus' encounter with the people from his hometown, you will become offended. Their attitude towards Jesus was, who does he think he is coming up in here trying to do something for us, trying to tell us what we need to do, trying to tell us how we need to respond? They had no respect for him. They had no honor for him. And because they had no honor for him, because they did not give him the place that he deserved in their lives, they would not, could not receive correction from him. Now, we've said this a few times. God has to be able to communicate with you to help you. God has to be able to communicate with you to help you. Please don't let that statement of truth sell over your head. And, and I think the reason it sells over a lot of people's heads is because we think 
that God is going to do whatever God is going to do for us whether we work together with Him or not. That He's either going to help us or He's not. He's either going to bless us or He's not. He's either going to promote us or He's not. He's either going to heal us or He's not. He's either going to uh, you know, show us kindness and favor or He's not. And, and, and that is the danger of, of, of this teaching that's so popular in the body of Christ today that just you know, throws out this blanket statement, God is in control without any clarification or any explanation. My friend, there are certain things that God is in control of. But then there are other things that He has put you and me in control of. And God will not do for you what He has told you to do yourself. Thank you for that amen. But you see, when we're sold this bill of goods that it's all up to God and has nothing to do with, with us... It leads us into this deception. And so when somebody like me stands up to you and says, listen, God, God loves you. God wants to help you. God wants to work in your life. But He has to be able to communicate with you to help you. The people in Nazareth were at a stalemate. Now, it's easier to talk about them than it is to talk about ourselves, but let's talk about them and hopefully learn something about ourselves. The people in Nazareth were at a stalemate. The attitude of their heart towards Jesus made it impossible for Jesus to help them. Can we just get right down to it? It was the attitude in their heart towards Him that made it impossible for Him to help them. It didn't say He wouldn't help them. He said He couldn't help them. And He couldn't help them despite wanting to help them. If he didn't want to help them, he wouldn't have set out in a circuit uh, following a specific pattern from neighborhood to neighborhood, village to village, teaching them faith by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So Jesus goes to them uh, on, on a smaller scale in smaller groups to try to present to them uh, truth and understanding and, 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 and instruction. Can we say it a, a simpler way? He was trying to communicate to them what Father God had put in His heart to communicate to them in hopes that their hearts would turn because unless and until their hearts turned, His hands were tied and, 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 and as far as His ability to help them was concerned. So the people in Nazareth were that stalemate. The attitude of their heart towards Jesus made it impossible for Him to help them. And all the while, they're thinking, if He really is all that He claims to be, then He will do great miracles among us and prove it. So do you see, do you see the dilemma that we're, that we're dealing with here? They have an attitude in their heart that's preventing Him from doing the miracles. All the while, they're thinking that He's going to have to prove to us who He is by doing miracles. So when no great miracles were performed, they pointed to their absence as proof for what they suspected all along. He's nothing more than Mary's son. They never considered there were no miracles because of a problem on their end. They never considered that there was something that they needed to change, that there was something that they were lacking that there was something that was missing on their part that was preventing Jesus from doing the miracles that they wanted to see before they decided what they were, whether or not they were going to respect Him, whether or not they were going to honor Him. Are you, are you seeing this, this deadlock? Are you seeing this stalemate? 
Now, let me get a sip of water here. Praise God. You might want to write this down and do some serious thinking about it, okay? Any thought involving God won't or hasn't yet is leading you away from your miracle. Any thought that God won't or hasn't already, hasn't yet, it's not, it's not leading you in the direction of the breakthrough and the miracle that you need. That line of thinking is leading you away from it. Do I need to do some explaining here? Any thought, now obviously if you don't believe God can, that's, that's a, a, another problem in and of itself. But there are a whole lot of people who never question God's ability but they question his willingness. It's not whether or not God is able to do it. The question they have is whether or not he's willing to do it for them. So notice the root of, you know, won't is a conjunction, right? Will not, we get won't from that. So any thought involving God will not or has not yet is leading you away from your miracle. Because God won't or God hasn't yet implies the issues are on God's end and not ours. That kind of thinking implies we're waiting on Him when He's waiting on us. Were the people of Nazareth waiting on Jesus? In their minds, they were waiting on Him. They were waiting on Him to do something. They were waiting on Him to perform some miracle. They were, they, in other words, I've heard He did these things other places, but He hasn't done them here yet. We've heard about all these things that he's done everywhere else. Well, you know, physician, heal yourself. You know, what, when are you going to do those things here among us? Because we're still trying to figure out who you really are. And we're, we're, we're withholding judgment. See, that's a lie. Anytime you say you're withholding judgment, what you're really saying is you've already, you've already made a judgment and now you're waiting for more information to see whether or not the judgment you have in your heart is accurate or not. They already, remember him coming home after all these things he had done everywhere else, exposed some long-held beliefs, judgments, and opinions that they had of him. Things that they just kind of, you know, as long as he was Mary's son, as long as he was a carpenter among them, as long as he was, you know, his brothers and sisters and, and, and just, you know, one in a long line of, of, of those kinds of people, then they just kind of let some of that stuff lay beneath the surface. But now, right, he's put himself out there. Now he's, uh, you know, stirring up uh, all kinds of publicity, all kinds of uh, excitement of the places. And they know, they know the real Jesus. That's their thinking, see. I mean, he's got these people fooled, right? But he ain't got us fooled. This was the attitude of these, of these folks' heart when he comes back to them. So any thought involving God won't or hasn't yet is leading you away from your miracle. Let's talk about the hasn't yet part. You realize that everything that you and I will ever need in this life has already been bought and paid for and given to us freely. This, this one attitude right here 
is, is, such a, is such an issue, such a problem with people in the body of Christ. God says, by his stripes you were healed. Healing has already been bought, paid for, and given to you. But notice now, we're, 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 any thought that says God hasn't healed me yet is carrying you away from your healing. Any thought that says I'm waiting on God to do it for me is a thought that, that's not in alignment with what the Scriptures teach, with what God has, are you ready? With what God has already said to you. Remember, if He's going to help you, He's got to be able to communicate with you. And we can't ignore His communications. We can't, we can't you know, take what He says and run it through the filter of our religious indoctrination and come up with our own approach to how all this works. That was what was happening at Nazareth. You know, they had how they think this whole scenario should play itself out. How, you know, okay, well, Jesus is coming home. Well, he, he, he better bring it. If he's going to expect us to, 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 to get behind him, if he's going to expect some of us to be his followers, if he's coming here looking for disciples, he's going he, he's to have to convince us. Do you see, how, do you see the lack of honor? Let me say it another way, right? Because the world's mindset is honor and has to be earned, right? It has to be deserved. And in their, in their estimation, Jesus had not done anything deserving of honor. He had not done anything to earn their respect. Now, let's build on this. God has to be able to communicate with you to help you, and His ability to communicate with you depends upon the attitude of your heart towards Him. When you are wrong about something, what do you need most? Somebody read it off the screen for me, real loud. When you're wrong about something, the thing that you need the most is not for somebody to impress you with what they can do. When you're wrong about something, the thing you need the most is you need to be corrected. I'll be the first one to raise my hand. You ever, you ever been wrong and thought you were right? <laughs> can, I, can I tell you that that's the one place I never want to be in again. I said it way back yonder in the cabinet shop days. For those of you who are new to Heritage, this, this church started first Sunday of June 1998 in our cabinet shop, about two blocks, three blocks that way. Okay. And way, way back in the cabinet shop, I said something that caused some people to just gasp. They couldn't believe I said it because they didn't understand it. I said this, I said, I welcome the Lord's correction in my life. And the reason that unsettled a lot of people is because they believed God's correction involved tornadoes or traffic accidents or natural, some other natural disaster. My friend, that's not how God corrects His people. He's the Father of spirits, the Bible says. He's the father of spirit. See, we, we keep thinking that God's going to do something to our flesh to correct our spirit. 
his words, their spirit and their life. He corrects you and sets you apart with his truth. Set them apart by your truth, Father. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. See, we, we've been, another lie that we've been told in the body of Christ, that somehow if we just go through enough heartache and hardship, that somehow we will mature as believers. What don't kill you makes you stronger. It's not a Bible verse. It's a country song. It's not a Bible verse. Let me tell you what heartache and hardship does to a lot of people. It doesn't make them better. It makes them bitter. And, and if that's the case, then when is all this maturity coming? God knows enough of, uh, enough of his children have been through enough hard times and heartache. We, we ought to be faith ninjas by now. See, again, what, what, did the, what did the prophet say? You know, the whirlwind is his voice. And I, no, it's the still small voice. It's God's ability to communicate with you. When you're wrong about something, what do you need most? You need correction. So here's a very important question. Who will you listen to when you're wrong and don't know it? Now, I, I use, I ask this question, let me say it this way. I ask it a lot in the classes I teach at the Foundry, and I don't ask it enough in the messages and, and classes and things we have here. Who do you have in your life that you will listen to when you're wrong and can't see it? When you think you're right and you are wrong, who do you have in your life? Now, let, let me watch this now. I'm trying to back you into a deeper understanding of honor. If you have someone in your life that you will listen to when you're wrong and you don't see it and you don't know it, then that's a person you honor. Are you hearing me? That's a person that you honor. If and listen, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, you know, a category of people. I'm talking about a person with the first, middle, and last name. Can, can, I, can I just... I came here this morning excited about a sermon entitled uh, Two Case Studies of Honor. And I was so excited about preaching that message, and I sat down to kind of put the finishing touches on it, and man, the Lord started directing me down this path. And I'm like, but Father, that other message would be so much more fun to preach. You know what I'm saying? Don't raise your hand because you don't have to, because I, I know you because I know me, right? None of us have arrived. None of us know everything there is to know yet. None of us in our outward life reality, now the Bible says if you've been born again, you've been perfected forever at the spirit level of your being. John Mark sang that song about Christ being formed in you. It's one thing for him to be born in you. It's another thing for him to be formed in you. 
Christ born in you occurs through uh, the new birth at salvation. Christ formed in you occurs through the process of discipleship. Him being born in you is an instantaneous work. Him being formed in you is a progressive work. We are growing up into Jesus in all things. And since no one in this room, myself included, has grown up into Jesus yet in all things, that means we've still got some learning to do. And if we've still got some learning to do, that means we still need correction. That's the point that I think I'm trying to gently bring us all to, is that we all need correction and the Bible says that God, as the father of our spirits, that the, the child, the son that he loves, he corrects. Aren't you glad that father loves us enough to correct us? Aren't you glad that father knows when you're wrong, when I'm wrong, and we think we're right, and he knows that there's a way that seems right to us that leads to death, that leads to destruction, and he doesn't want us on a pathway that seems right, that leads to destruction, that leads to death. And so he tries to correct us. Now, obviously, Father God uses his word, but we also see in Scripture that God uses other members in the body of Christ to bring correction to us. People that we must honor if we're going to receive that correction from. I know that some people are very critical of the Catholic Church when, when they practice going in and, and making confession to a priest. But the Bible says that we, as born-again believers, individual members of the body of Christ, that we should confess our faults one to another. Whoa, hold on a second, Pastor Mark. I, I, I leave all my faults at home. I don't, I don't bring any of that with me to church. I keep all that hidden, right? See, that, that's, that's compliance. Bethany and I were talking about this yesterday, you know, school teacher, and she's got a great group of students this year. She's thankful, you know. But there's a difference between true humility and just simple outward compliance. A lot of people try to comply with what they think Everybody else, you know, is wanting from them. But that's a, that's a huge difference between actually being in submission to one another. The Bible says that we should submit ourselves one to another. You see, you will only receive correction from someone you honor. And since none of us have arrived, we all need correction. This to me is one of the... Let, let, I, I know we're kind of spread out here. I'm going to try to bring it all back home here in just a few minutes, okay? Just stay with me. When we talk about the importance of honor, we can talk about the importance of honor and our ability uh, to see things that we, we can't see, spiritual things, hidden things, mysteries. We can talk about the connection between honor and faith. Jesus said to that group of religious leaders, how can you believe if you choose honor from men over honor that's from God? You know, all of these things are, are, you know, so connected to and so related to honor operating and functioning in our lives. But this is one of those that maybe not as, as clear and not as obvious, but to me, just as important, if not more important. And it's the connection between honor and receiving correction. 
And this is, this is where, um, you know, either you have honor or you don't, right? Um, and, and this is where it's, it's exposed. <sighs> Stay with me now. We see that these people were so close to miracles. They were so close to healings and supernatural breakthroughs. Again, it's easy to point to their unbelief as the reason for Jesus' hands being tied that day, but the complete answer is unbelief due to a lack of honor. Now, let's do this. Luke 4. Go with me there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Luke chapter 4. Because what we find in Luke 4 is Luke's account of this same uh, event. Okay, Luke the fourth chapter, beginning at verse 16. Luke chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Look at me real quick for a moment, okay? When it says this was his custom, we know that before he came home to Nazareth that he had went into regions all around, areas all around Galilee and had done this same exact thing. This was what, remember, he didn't do anything unless his father told him to do it. He didn't say anything unless his father told him to say it. So these were the marching orders, if you will, that he received from his father. And the, and the marching orders were to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath take the scroll uh, from where Isaiah had written about the, um, the things that the Messiah would be and do, read that to the people, then sit down in a chair that was reserved only for the Messiah after having said, today these scriptures are fulfilled in your hearing. So, so in other words, this was, this was what Jesus did everywhere he went. Mark chapter 6 doesn't record that Jesus did this but Luke 4 records that he did it. All we see in Mark 6 was that he spoke to the people, but we know that he did this because of what Luke says, because also this was his custom. This is what he did everywhere he went. Right? And so this is what he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So look at me again for a moment. This was something that the Father God had spoken to his people through the prophet Isaiah. And they knew that there was going to come a Messiah one day who would fulfill these words, who would actually be the one who did all of this. Now remember, God has not spoken to his people now, what is it, almost over 400 years? Since the prophet Malachi, the last prophet in the Old Testament. Well, now, of course, we've got John the Baptist who has been preaching a message of repentance. And now Jesus comes to the forefront. Um, from what was basically obscurity in, in a carpenter shop in, in uh, um, Nazareth. I almost said a carpenter shop in Nashville. I guess i got John Mark on the, on the mind still. A carpenter shop in Nazareth. And he walks in after having been baptized by 
John the Baptist, he was led out in, uh, the Holy Spirit came upon him, was led out in the Spirit to be tempted uh, by the devil. He, the Bible says he returned to the power of God's Spirit. And now he's going from synagogue to synagogue throughout the entire region. He's taken the, the, the scroll from Isaiah. He's reading a very familiar passage, rolls the scroll back up, hands it to the attendant, and then goes sits and sits down in a chair that was designated for the Messiah when he would arrive one day. Jesus sits down in that chair. He says, everything necessary for this scripture to come to pass in your life is right here, right now, today, in himself. Well, in other places, the people just ran to him. Help us. We, you know, honored him, respected him, recognized him, received him, gave him place. So do you see a little more of the picture now? He comes home, he does the same identical thing, rolls up the scroll, hands it to the attendant, goes, sits down in the chair. Everybody in the room's eyes are fixed on him. I believe their eyes are fixed on him and they're about big as uh, tea saucers, right? Coffee saucers, whatever. Like, I believe all the oxygen was sucked out of the room. And Jesus says today, now, everything that's necessary for this scripture to come to pass in your life is right here sitting in front of you. And this is when they start, oh, hold on a second now. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Are you seeing this? All right. So he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat, uh, and sat down, and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? Okay. Now, we know that Jesus marveled at their unbelief. And he knew their unbelief was rooted in their lack of honor because he said that, right? He said a prophet is not without honor except for in his own uh, among his own people in his own uh, country, okay? So the best solution, stay with me now, the best solution was to go from village to village in a circuit, think in a pattern, teaching. So here's the question. What do you think Jesus went from village to village to teach? Obviously, he's going to teach something in an effort to resolve the problem and break the stalemate, and the stalemate was not just unbelief, it was unbelief due to a lack of honor. And the lack of honor was what was preventing God from working through Him among them. Are you seeing this? So you say, well, Pastor Mark, you're just assuming that that's what He um, it was teaching. Well, if that's all I had, it, I think it would still be a safe assumption but Luke's account of these events gives us a better idea of what Jesus taught the people. Let's keep reading. Verse 23. He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have done, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heaven was shut up three years and six months and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. 
And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Now, if you think they were offended before, this absolutely throws them into a rage. So much so, so, much so that they try to kill him. What's that song? I see your true colors shining through. Right? I mean, you, you know, they were being polite in the synagogue, you know, at first. But now they are done with him. So what did Jesus teach in the villages in a circuit? I believe he taught these things right here. In the days of Elijah, many widows starved to death, but there was one, and she was not Jewish. There was one who was saved. And in the days of Elisha, there were many lepers in Israel, and not one of them was cleansed. But Naaman, who, by the way, also was not Jewish, he was Syrian, he was cleansed of his leprosy. If God saved non-Jewish widows, do you not think He was interested in saving Jewish widows? If if God cleansed non-Jewish lepers, do you not think He was interested interested in cleansing uh, Jewish lepers? Again, the answer is absolutely. Now, there are similarities. We're about out of time, but let let me set this up for you. There are similarities between the people of Nazareth and the people of Elijah and Elisha's day. They all needed help from God, and God desired to help them. And in all three instances, the people did not receive the help available to them because the people did not honor the person God sent to them to help them. God sent Elijah... God sent Elisha and God sent Jesus, among many others, but those are the three that we're looking at now. He sent Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus to His people to speak to them on His behalf. This is important. He sent them to speak to them on His behalf. God gave each of these men powerful words. Different words, but powerful words. We see among the words that God gave to Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus... He gave them words of promise, things that God promised to to do for and, and with and through His people. He gave them words of encouragement. But we also see that He gave them words of instruction and words of correction. So four categories, words of promise, words of encouragement, words of instruction, and then words of correction. It requires little to no honor to receive a word of promise or a word of encouragement from someone. But the same prophets, the same Messiah, who brought words of promise, words of encouragement, also brought words of instruction and words of correction. And it was when the words of instruction and correction came forth that the honor or lack thereof was revealed in people's hearts. 
It requires little honor to receive a word of promise or a word of encouragement. But on the other hand, it requires a great deal of honor to receive instruction and even more honor to receive correction. Stand with me. Maybe we'll get there next week. Let me, as you're standing, let me, let me just kind of give you a little bit of what's going on here. If you look at, if you look at these two stories that Jesus referred to. In both situations, we see that it was a, it was a non-Jewish um, widow and a non-Jewish leper who received supernatural provision from God, who received supernatural healing from God. And if you look closely at the stories, what you see is in both of these situations that this widow and this Uh, high-ranking military official in the Syrian army, both of these uh, individuals gave honor to the prophet. God told Elijah to look that widow in the face after she said, I've got enough meal left to make me and my son a little cake of bread, and then we're going to eat it, sir, and die. And he looks her in the face and says, make me a cake first. (laughs) If there was ever an opportunity for somebody to say, who do you think you are? See, here's the thing. She knew who he was. He was the prophet, right? Now, I may be reading something in here that's not here, but I believe that her thinking was this land needs a prophet more than it needs a widow and her son. She honored him, and God provided for her. The Syrians dying of, of, of leprosy and his king finds out there's a prophet in Israel who can heal him. That king sends a letter to the king of Israel and he says, I'm sending my servant to you to be healed of his leprosy. And the king of Israel says, he's trying to pick war with us. Who am I to heal a man of his leprosy? Elisha said, Send them to me. At least the king of Syria knows there's a prophet in Israel. You seeing this? The king of Israel had no respect for the prophet that God had put in Israel. Matter of fact, when he receives a letter from the king of Syria that he wants his servant to be healed of leprosy, He panics. He's like, I can't heal this man of leprosy. What in the world? He's playing some trick on us. He's just going to send him down here. The man's going to die of leprosy and he's going to use that as an an excuse to come and and destroy us in, in a war. Boy, he had a high esteem for the prophet, didn't he? He said, send him to me. At least the king of Syria knows there's a prophet in Israel. Father, you're good to us. Help us, Lord, this morning. Help us see, Father, 
so many things that you're trying to get us to see and help us see, Father. First of all, the offense, Lord, that, 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 that we can't be offended when you send your Holy Spirit and your Holy Word of, of, to us to correct us. Father, that we would honor you and respect you and the people that you send to us enough to receive correction and instruction from them. And then, Father, that, that, that we would recognize that, that we're not waiting on you uh, to get ready to help us or do something for us. But, Father, you're waiting on us. You're waiting on us, Father, to, to, to align ourselves with you and, and to align our hearts and, and our thinking and our expectations with you, Father our understanding with you, Lord. Thank you for this, Lord. Thank you that you love us enough to correct us when we're wrong. And Father, that, that we've all admitted this morning that we're, we're all a work in progress. None of us have got it all figured out yet. And so, Lord, teach us. And, and Lord, if we're wrong and can't see it, uh, show us, correct us, and help us, Father. Lord, and we purpose in our hearts to, to so honor you and to so value you and your word and your willingness to love us enough to correct us, Father, that we will not be offended by it, Lord, but that we will receive it. And, and we won't just comply, but, Lord, that we will humble ourselves and, 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 and we will receive, Lord God, the correction that we need in our lives to, to move on into the things, Father, that you have for each of us to experience in you, to receive from you, and to do for you. Father, thank you for this beautiful group of people in this room, those watching online today. Lord, thank you for uh, the people in, in my life, Lord, that speak into my life, that bring words of, of instruction and correction, words from you, Father, uh, into my life. Lord, I value, I, I thank you, Lord, for these precious men and women. And Lord, if, if we can't name somebody in our lives that we'll listen to when we're wrong and don't know it, Father, show us today who those people need to be in our lives, and may we get that nailed down and established. We thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen and amen. Thank you so much for being here.